Okay, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5. And we're just going to look at verses 21 through 26. While you're turning there, I'm, going to, I'm just going to ask God's blessing over this time. God, would you lead us in this, uh, in your words. This is, I mean, the, the whole book is your word, but this is the words of you, Jesus. Um, and it is just such a privilege to be at your feet, kind of in my mind, on the hillside, listening to you. Lord, you have my attention. May we, in our hearts, and the Holy Spirit, would you just transport us to that crowd that we could be there on pins and needles, that we could be there listening to every word you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 21 through 26 of Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, or some of your translations say, say, racha to his brother will be liable to the council. And, to the council. and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled first to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and the guard, guard puts you in prison. Truly, I'm gonna, I'll say this to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Um, as a church, as Calvary Wallingford, our particular church, we have a very um, simple but I think laser beam focused vision for who we are as followers of Jesus. We are a community of people who are in the process of organizing and prioritizing our entire lives around following Jesus together. If you want to know what this is about, that's what this is about. That's why we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We are a group of people, and I, the invitation is to come with us, imperfect yet genuine people who are learning and in the process of organizing and prioritizing our hearts, our minds, our entire lives around the way, what Jesus called the way, his way, the way of Jesus. That's what we're doing. And if you're signing up to come on this journey with us, then of course you're gonna want some information on what that life looks like. Uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What, what's, we need an imagination for what this is. And that is why we're going to spend much of our time in Jesus' most famous of teachings, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing short of Jesus' manifesto of what it looks like to be human in his kingdom, to be a human being in his kingdom, and how that kingdom is changing us into the kind of humans we were always meant to be. That's the idea. As we interact with Jesus in his kingdom, you, will, you and I will be changed. We are becoming something, and that's what this is about. And last week, I, I gotta remind us of this, we discovered what I'm gonna call the plumb line of the Sermon on the Mount, the true north, if you would, 
that runs through the entire sermon, the objective anchor point that will get us through this teaching, interpreting it, I think, correctly or in balance. For those of you guys out there that work in construction, I, mean, I used to frame houses with Big Dave for a time, and when we would, and I'm probably gonna butcher this because it's been so long, but you guys will get the point. When we would start framing a house, one of the first things we would do is find out the square of that house. We would make sure that every, we were gonna put the walls in the right place, that the foundation was square, and we used a, I remember we used this chalk line, and we, Dave did a bunch of calculations and calculus and all of these things, and he marked it out, and we would snap the plumb line. I think, Paul, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, you know what I'm talking about. You're, and you're like, and you're like, and you don't know what you're talking about. But all I know is that that line was very important. That line was what set the tone for the house to get us through it correctly. I think there's, Jesus in verse 20 gave us the plumb line for this sermon so we can navigate it correctly. Jesus said that his kingdom is giving people what he described as an inner kind of righteousness that exceeds the surface level or behavioral focus, external kind of righteousness of the religious leaders of the day. And from that, I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna present with you a very important equation, and I wanna ask you to keep your mind on it as we keep going through. Here's the equation that we must remember and navigate as we go forward. Jesus is not saying that his followers must do or do not certain things. Now, don't get me wrong, Behavior to Jesus is incredibly important. Most of this sermon is about behavior. But I, there's a little nuance here. Jesus is not concerned about his followers doing and not doing certain things as much as Jesus is concerned and into making us certain kinds of people who naturally do and don't do certain things. Do you hear the little nuance there? It's really important, really important. It's this inner righteousness versus an outer kind of righteousness. And if you don't understand that plumb line, you'll read these as external commands. You'll read these as, as things that, oh, I have to perform a certain way or behave a certain way. No, Jesus is trying to give us an imagination of what kind of person he's making you into. And please, for you elders and preaching team that's going to be preaching on this later, keep this in mind. This is the line that we've got to hold He's turning us into the kind of people that will start to behave and act certainly. He's talking about character, right? Character. This is something that we really, we really could use in our culture today. Not just people that do kinds of things, but people that do kinds of things with a certain kind of energy and a certain kind of integrity and a certain kind of vitality and joy and a natural uh, bent that comes to us where we just naturally do these types of things. Jeremiah said in the Old Testament, a day is coming where I will write the law, the Torah of God on your heart. In other words, it will become the natural way you think, what you do. That's what Jesus is up to here. And I can't um, overemphasize how important it is for us to understand that going forward. That is our true north. Jesus is starting to give us the imagination of what he wants you to be. In our home group, we, our, Ted had a brilliant idea of saying, hey, let's, let's journal or let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us an imagination of what this kind of person is like. I thought this is brilliant. I've been praying that the whole time. Lord, would you please show me? Because all I know is who I am now. That's what's in front of me. Give me a vision. Capture my imagination of who you're making me 
And may that be our prayer. And Jesus is going to do that. He's going to begin doing this by giving us six case studies that hone in on characteristics of the people of his kingdom. Again, not just what they do, but the kind of people that behave in a certain way from a deeper righteousness character of the heart. He's gonna begin to describe this for us by giving us six scenarios. And in all of these case studies, he indicates this deeper level by using like a verbal equation. Each time he uses this, you've heard it said, but I say. That's his way of saying, here's the surface level, but I say I'm going to take it deeper into the human soul. That's what he's saying. Uh, The first part, you've heard it said, was a common rabbinical phrase that rabbis would say when they were about to quote the law and the prophets, and a popular um, kind of consumer-level interpretation of what they were um, quoting, what part of the law they were quoting. Um, But Jesus goes deeper. He doesn't hang his authority on anything else. He just hangs it on himself. He says, but I say. He doesn't quote somebody else. He doesn't say, here's what this person, I, I align with this school of thought. He just leaves it there. But I say this. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I am the new authority, not new, but maybe to you guys in the crowd. I am the authority of all scripture interpretation." It now goes through me. It's a very bold claim. In fact, at the end of the sermon, the crowd is astonished at this. They're astonished at his authority. He didn't even hang it on scripture itself. He just said, here's what the scripture says, and I'm gonna tell you what it means, and I don't need to back that up. That's who I, I'm this messianic role of interpreting scripture from now on. And his application of the Old Testament in each of these six uh, case studies drives spiritual truth down past the surface, deep into the very DNA of the human soul. Jesus' words are so simple and yet so insightful, so deep and profound that we could really spend a lifetime thinking thinking on the Sermon on the Mount alone, not to mention the rest of his life, what he did in his other teachings. It's so profound. And I just have to pause and say, and mention, because I feel like it's crazy that we don't hear this more often. I have to pause and just highlight the brilliance of Jesus. The guy is so smart. And, and I, I, we chuckle at that because we think, especially if you're a follower of Jesus in here, you think, well, of course he's God. Of course he's smart. But that almost makes us dismiss his brilliance. If you were to ask people from our culture, in fact, maybe even people in this room, Hey, who would, what's a name that you would come up with when you hear the word smart or intelligent? And you might hear Descartes, you might hear Einstein, you might hear a whole host of different names, but unfortunately, I'd be willing to bet that Jesus would, may not be at the top of that list. He's almost barely breathing for us, more of like an icon that stood for something kind of on the margins of society back then that really isn't relevant for today. My uncle, God bless his soul, my uncle Vinny, for those of you that don't know, I am, I am from a very large New York Italian family residing in the Bronx, New York. And my uncle, who knows I'm a priest, that's what he calls me, the family priest, they're Catholic, so that's the, they translate pastor into priest. He called me the other day and left a voicemail and said, forget Jesus, buy yourself a gun. As we said, forget about Jesus. 
That's fine, but forget about it. Buy yourself a gun and learn to shoot, okay? Learn the proper grip, watch a YouTube, and do, you know, learn to shoot it right because I'm telling you, the whole world's going crazy. And he gives me this long voicemail. Some of you are like, I like your uncle. But what was it? And he is, he is hysterical and um, very interesting. Anyways, um, the crazy thing I thought about, what was so interesting about that was that he could not see the relevance of Jesus into normal life. He, he's like, okay, great. It's kind of fine if you want to believe in religion. But hey, when it comes to really living in this country, go get a gun. Go do something practical. Go store your food. Go do all of those things, which all of those things are fine. But the, the, the divorce of Jesus, from that's kind of how we look at him. He's not, okay, great. He's this religious leader. He's God. He's divine. But he's, he's, I just want to say, he's brilliant. His insight into the human condition. He's more like in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like a doctor that's giving this incredible, Incredible, insightful, x-ray vision insight into the human soul and the human condition. And it's so timeless and so relevant, as I hope to show you, so good for today. And I think it's so sad today that I hear most, honestly, Christians that will bring up what they just read on some psychology website to help them get wisdom for their life when it comes to anger, lust, integrity, those types of things. We will Google it, or we will we'll read something on Instagram, or we'll, and we'll take that as, this is it, and yet we haven't, and maybe it, there is truth there, but we haven't first, what about Jesus? He's a well of wisdom. He's a well of wisdom. Well, today you'll find that out, because Jesus is talking about anger. He's talking, this is what it's all about. He's talking about anger. And I think I'm going to lead us through it today by kind of interviewing Jesus. We're going to ask him four questions. One, what is anger? What is it, Jesus? Two, why do you think it's so dangerous? Because clearly he thinks it's a bad thing. It's, it's a dangerous thing. Why do you think it's so dangerous? Third, why is your judgment of it so severe? It's a severe judgment. And fourth, what do we do about it as apprentices to Jesus? How do we live? How does our character, how is he changing us to be more like him? In this way, um, I've told you guys how Jesus is going to get personal with every one of us. I feel like before we get into this, I have to. This is like the point where the captain says, Turbulence ahead, buckle your seatbelts. You're gonna feel some shakiness in your heart. And I can't really do that with you. I was deciding and wrestling with this unless I show you how he's still talking to me. So I'm going, to be very, I'm going to be very vulnerable throughout this sermon, sermon series, hopefully to show you the power of Jesus to save and the power of Jesus to keep saving a broken and lost man like me. Uh, to start off with, I and those closest to me would tell you that I struggled deeply with what Jesus is talking about here today. Not, not murder. <laughs> You're like... Reaching your, put your cell phones back in your pocket. You're, we're fine. But deep anger. Um, I am someone who tends to impetuously react when I deem that I or the world around me has treated me unjustly. And I tend to react quickly and I tend to react largely. 
But I don't just react, unfortunately. I wish I could just stop reporting to you there. I replay the injustice in my mind. I look at it from many different angles. As I'm going about my day, it is on repeat, and I'm seeing it. And I like to use my favorite tool of circular reasoning to make it grow. And the anger begins to start burning and get bigger and bigger. And I have to say, I have done this so much that now the coals in the furnace of my gut are always glowing a little bit hot. Just waiting for the slightest trigger of tinder to erupt them into flame again. This is a problem for me. This is something that I've sought help for, even professional help. I've read books and articles. I've been to therapy and on and on. I found that somewhat helpful. But for the most part, this is one of the places in my life that sometimes still gets the better of me. Um, This low-grade anger sometimes will bubble out a dirty look here, a dig there, a snide remark, an under-the-belt cut there. And I'm ashamed to say, even at times, an eruption of self-righteous temper tantrum rage. It's not honoring, and it's very hurtful. And this, if this, this may be a surprise to you about me, And it's because, um, unfortunately, it comes at the people that are closest to me and the people that are most important. My anger. My wonderful wife has had to deal with this side of me. And to be honest, it's caused a lot of hurt in our relationship. And my dear son, who I love, has had to hear the heat in my voice or the look that I give him. I've seen his little heart deflate because he loves me so much. So all that to say, I have found the wisdom of Jesus to be so refreshing and helpful. When I, when we were looking, when I first started studying into the Sermon on the Mount in anger, I thought, oh, this is, I want to know this. This is where I want to come to. I need the wisdom of the Lord for this in my life. And I hope you will find it to be morrow to your soul as well and good for your heart and good for your mind as well. So let's jump through this. Let's, look, let's see what Jesus is up to here. In verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or says raka to his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, as I already pointed out, Jesus starts with this rabbinical phrase. You've heard that it's said. And then he quotes this prohibition against murder straight out out of the Decalogue, out of Exodus 20. Thou shalt not murder. Now the problem that Jesus has with with like surface level kind of righteousness is that it's merely connected to external behaviors. It's so simple and so obvious that we just brush it by. We kind of check it off the box. Like, okay, like who wakes up in the morning and does their devos and gets their coffee and goes, okay, I got to remember not to kill anyone today. 
I'm not going to murder anybody today. Okay, got it, Jesus. I think I'm ready for it. And off we go. It's pretty, it's a no-brainer. And it also provides people like me as a way to get out from conviction. I get angry and I say, well, at least I'm not out there killing people, right? It's a way for me to numb my conscience a little bit. But remember, our plumb line Jesus is not just concerned with his followers not killing people. I mean, I'm sure that's, he is, sure. But he's mainly concerned with making us into the kind of, kind of people that don't have murder in our hearts for people. That's what he's doing. We, 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 the world not only needs people not to kill each other, they need a kind of people that will not kill people, that will not hurt people, that are not contemptuous at people. So that's why he keeps going. That's why he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, don't murder. And people, and okay, next. He says, but I say to you in verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is anger, Jesus? What is anger? There are two Greek words that were available for Jesus to use. The first word is thumos. And it is, at its basic definition, thumos is an emotion that overtakes your mind and your body when something doesn't go the way you think it should go, when something or someone thwarts your will, okay? This is the very basic, let's start at the bottom and build it up from here. Very basically, when um, your phone can't, for whatever reason, won't send that time-sensitive email, and they're waiting for it, and you got to get it off, and your phone malfunctions. Thumos. Ah! That's, that's that. It, it flares up, but as soon as the situation is resolved, it's okay. All right. Or maybe being stuck in traffic, or maybe not getting food when you need it. Those types of things. When you get the food, have you, have you met people like that or they get hangry? They are angry, angry, angry. Then they eat and they're like, oh, so how are you anyway? You know, it's, it's up and then it's gone. That's, that's Thumos kind of anger. This is the anger that we feel when something thwarts our will. But the word used, that Jesus uses is not Thumos. Um, he uses the word orgazomenos or orgazomenos. And it's a word describing something more substantial and more long-lasting. And specifically, it's talking about being inclined to get angry at certain things and at certain people. Being so inclined to be angry. So, there's all kinds of anger. Greek Stoics called anger brevum insanium, which is Latin for a brief insanity. You know, you lose your mind for a second. You know what I mean? You're, just, you're not thinking straight. That's thumos level. It's just a flash in the pan, a moment of insanity. It, and, it, and it serves a basic function to stop something or someone from overtaking your will. It's not morally good or morally wrong necessarily. It just is. It's a basic function. It stops someone from injecting themselves upon you, and it's necessary for that. You need it, right? There's an anger that you need if someone breaks into your home. Get out of my house, right? You need that. It goes with courage. But on another level, there's an anger that is a slow burn towards things like injustice or, uh, you know, what they call a so-called righteous anger. 
That's orgasmenos. Or um, anger when someone is mistreated. I have a cat hair in my eyelash. Thumos. Ah, you know, got rid of it. Now I'm good. There's anger over, uh, maybe there's a trigger over past abuse and trauma in your life that comes up. There's anger at evil. Get mad at, at evil. There's anger over watching someone you love being stuck in some unhealthy relationship. There's all sorts of, Jesus, you guys, got angry on more than one occasion. Even Orgazamenos kind of angry. It was that kind of anger. But it was always over a misrepresentation of God or a mistreatment of other people. And it was always motivated and controlled by love. So, anger that's motivated and controlled by love could be considered healthy, quote-unquote, anger, okay? Meaning something is off or abnormal if you don't get angry at something, right? Like sometimes, if you're not angry at human trafficking, for example, you need to check to see if your heart's beating in its cage, right? Something's not right there. It's, it's, it's appropriate. But healthy anger is not what Jesus is referring to here in this passage. The grammar that Jesus uses is in this phrase, puts orgazomenos in what's called the present participle of the Greek. I, I, that's why I spit Greek out on you guys, because it, it's true, or it gives you a nuance that helps you to understand it. This is in what's called the present participle, which is describing a person who is inclined to anger as a character trait. In fact, in the Greek, the present participle would usually translate, or would literally translate Jesus' words here is into anyone who is being angry. That's the, it's, they don't put it that way because it's grammatically not correct. Let me, let me honor the English language and do it better. It would be something like anything who emphasis on the is angry. Anyone who is angry, or you could say anyone who is angry in his or her being, who is being angry, is angry as a character trait. Remember, Jesus is going for the character here. Jesus is describing an anger that stays with you and festers because you choose to nurture it. You throw sticks on it. You give it some air. You cherish it. You stoke it. But eventually, this kind of anger gets so hot that it never actually cools, even may perhaps now when you want it to. It just stays a low burn and is carried around and becomes, and becomes part of who you are at some point. That's why it's dangerous. The present participle does not point to a moment or a single action, like I stubbed my toe or my remote's not working or I can't watch the game. Or It's not pointing to a single action. Um, instead... It's usually, it's, re, it's reporting to, or it's, um, it denotes a, um, what one scholar called a carried anger, a portable anger. Like I'm carrying this around with me, looking for some attitude to, to point it at somebody. We carry around and we nurture it. There's a fine line. In fact, some um, scholars think a better word to translate this word anger would be resentment or contempt. But that would be probably a better translation here. So let's be clear. I mean, um, Jesus is not forbidding us to get angry. In fact, even in this passage, if you look down, you will not see him say, don't get angry. He just simply says, anyone who gets angry is in danger of some things. Okay? So first, 
Um, he's not forbidding anger. He's forbidding the everyday kind of anger with certain people or situations that we carry around and we nurture and it becomes the way that we, colors the way we look at the world and we, we look at life. And there's a fine line between anger and contempt. You know that. Uh, Paul put it this way. He said, be angry, but don't sin. In other words, and you can just feel the razor's edge there. It's so hard. It's so easy to blur that line. On the other hand, let me be clear. Jesus is not presenting a menu of different kinds of anger. Some that are edible and some like mushrooms and some that you don't want to eat. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's more likely saying, be careful not to give any anger. That's thumos. Any anger fuel because it will quickly grow out of control and the consequences are disastrous. If it happens, fine, but don't feed it. Careful, he's saying. I think of like a match. A match, you know, it's dangerous in the sense that it, you, it, if you feed it, it can get out of control. Does it happen? Sure. Can it be, use, can it be useful? Sure. But is it dangerous? Yes. You need, to, you need to treat it with extreme caution. You don't use it flippantly. And we, maybe you do, but when you, when you were taught as a parent, when your parent taught you for the first time, it was always be careful at all times. Here's where you use a match. Here's where you don't, right? Here's what we do with it. Here's how we don't do with it. Those types of things. Like walking with a knife. You walk down, pointed down, and maybe when you're first teaching your 13-year-old or 12-year-old, it's as far away from you as possible, and it's only to use for certain things, and you put it away right away. It's a tool. It's not a toy. You go through all. Now, it's, this stuff is natural for us. But at its very root, all anger is dangerous, even though necessary. Dangerous doesn't mean evil. doesn't mean morally bad. It just means dangerous. It needs to be, we need to be careful with it. A match in a book of matches is thumos. It's usable but must be treated with utmost care and respect. When you strike it, it flames up and then quickly goes out. But when you put that flame in the right environment, or gizomenos, you nurture it, you feed it, it can be quite useful, but it can also be quite out of control. Be very cautious. It's when you give in and feed anger. And the words of Jonathan Edwards, he said, I've never met a fire that says, enough fuel, please, I'm, I'm good. Fire's always hungry for more. It loves to feed on itself and it grows and grows and grows and grows. But you might still be thinking, well, Jesus, what's the danger here really? Why are you warning us so strongly about anger in your kingdom? Well, he, let's look, listen to what he says. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults or says racha to his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, obviously dangerous. And he's using strong metaphors here and strong language here. In Jesus' mind, there's a, danger, there's a dangerous progression that occurs in a person and into a society that gives in to anger or that treats anger like a virtue, like our society. This is why this is so hard for us. It starts as an emotion, like we said, that floods through our minds and our bodies when someone uh, is against our will or thwarts our will. It might even hurt, it might hurt our ego. We might not like how it makes us feel. But if we nurture that feeling, playing the, playing the offense over and over again in our minds, having, you know, 
having conversations with that person. You know, I should have said that. Oh, I bet that, that would have zung them. And you just, this can go on for hours and hours. It just keeps going on and on. Thinking about it and turning it over, looking at it from different angles, it begins to grow and 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 begins to grow. I'm pretty sure and you go, Raka! It leaks out. Now, uh, we don't obviously use the word raka, but in Jesus' day, this was, a, this was an expletive. This was a four-letter word. Are there any kids in the house? Okay. This would be like us saying, dumbass. Effing fool. Freaking stupid. Like that, that's what that is. It's a deep insult, usually over something that someone has done. Someone runs through a red light. Dumbass. Stupid. Someone cuts you off. Right? I, all, all of us right now are going, Ooh. I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, other people. I have this friend who gets stuck in that sometimes. Noble and I were walking, as we do every day, from the bus, and there was a, this delivery driver, and someone pulled in front of him. It wasn't a big deal, but pulled in front of him a little bit. He lost his ever-loving mind. He just let that lady have it. His, his veins were bulging. His face was red. You idiot, we shouldn't let you people drive. And on the back it said, how am I driving? Call 1-800. You know? Oh. That's why Nicole removes all of our Christian bumper stickers on our car. Yeah, she says that because that's for me. We obviously don't use it. So we're moving from contempt in the heart to leaking out verbal insults, but then the fire keeps growing because honestly it feels good, doesn't it? It feels, what does it feel? It feels self-righteous to go that I'm better than you, especially in somebody that we're, we're arguing with. I'm right and you're wrong. It makes me feel like, oh, actually you're the dumb one and I'm the smart one. I can see things so clearly and you clearly cannot. And that moves into, here's what Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the Greek word moros, which is where we get our word moron. And it's actually an ancient biblical word. It's used all throughout the wisdom literature and it's really important. It's denoting someone who's not just intellectually stupid, but it's talking about someone who's also immoral as well. Someone who's godless. Let me give you an example. Psalm 53.1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Or Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge. So there are such things as fools. They're, they're there. But when we move into judging someone as a fool, we're moving from insulting something they do to now, putting, to now assassinating their character. This fire begins to grow. And in this way, Jesus is saying that nurtured, carried around anger is the root that leads to some of humanity's worst sins, murder. He's saying it all stems from there. So maybe you have not murdered anybody in here, but we've all been to the place in our hearts that Jesus is describing. We've all been to that same place, haven't we? Come on, let's be real. I started, 
I jumped in, the water's fine. We've all been to that place of contempt, of hatred. And Jesus is saying, look, it's the same source. So maybe you haven't let it externally let you break the law. But that is the problem with the human condition. Dale Bruner, who is one of the top scholars on Matthew, and he's just been so helpful to me as I've been studying Matthew, he said, he had this great quote. He says, the source of all these injuries is orgizomenos, and he says, it's, well, and it's true, it's the word, where, same where we get the word orging, orgy. Orging, he says, grudging, resenting, being angry, continuing mad. Out of this cesspool hisses the careless and bitter word, and both the pool and its effusion poison others, and in some cases even lead to death. Listen to this, listen to this. He says, resentment and hard words kill more people than drugs, alcohol, or tobacco combined. There are more pollutants in the world than we think. Jesus performs a major act of public health and ecology when he bans this source of sickness and damnation from his community. Thus, when Jesus left the sick at the end of the last chapter and began teaching, he did not cease healing. He began to heal in the deep places of the human soul. I felt that was just amazing. John Mark Comer provides a very helpful progression of how this can work. He he gives us seven steps of what can progress to the worst. First, you just get angry. That's step number one. You just get mad. Step number two, you let it, you take it personally. You know what I'm saying? How dare you say that to me? You let your ego get bruised. You take it personally. Step number three, you play the self-righteous victim. That means you give your heart over to contempt. This is when you think of yourself as better than the other person that's wronged you. And the only way to sustain that illusion, the only way to sustain that illusion is to make a judgment on their character, not just their behavior, but on their character. You didn't just lie, you are a liar. You didn't just forget to take out the trash, you are irresponsible. I can't trust you. See? And the only way to do that is to highlight all of their weaknesses and ignore all of their strengths while highlighting all of your strengths and ignoring all of your weaknesses. That's the only way to pull that off. Finally, he says, number four, that leaks out in verbal violence. Raka, jerk, right? Fifth is hell on earth, he says. We harm others and we harm ourselves. And his sixth, I said seven, I think it's six steps. His sixth and final step is some atrocity like murder. A quick word on the severity of Jesus here. Look what he says. I mean, we can't ignore this. Look what he says. I say to you that everyone who is angry, orgasmenos, with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's in the Greek, that's the word Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish supreme court of the day. And it was very intense language because they believed that the Sanhedrin was, had a parallel or a mirror effect to the council going on in heaven. They carried that same authority or that they passed judgment on behalf of heaven, of the court of heaven. 
And he goes on, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. Most scholars don't see this as a progression towards something worse, 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 but basically three ways of saying the same thing. You're going to be judged. You're going to be, the council of heaven will rule that you, you're going to be sent to hell. Now, we have to talk about hell. I have to have a moment here. I want to hone in on the word hell here because we have tremendous trouble with this word, don't we? And the word for us is loaded with a lot of imagery and a lot of connotations that may and most likely are not in your Bible. Most of what we think about when we think of hell, we get from Dante, Dante's Inferno, or some Greek mythology where like this pit that's on fire and people trying to get out and God says, ha, 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 it's too late, like that type of thing. That's what we think of. And I generally find language like God, sent, God will send you to hell or you're going to hell. I generally find that extremely unhelpful and misleading when it comes to how the Bible portrays the idea of hell. First of all, the word hell here, let me just geek out on you for a moment about hell. I, did, I thought I'll do this here instead of do like a four-point series on hell. i just not motivated for that. So in the Old Testament, or actually, first, the word hell here is the word Gehenna, and it's an actual place. Okay? So in Jesus' day, when, when Jesus said the hell of fire, they would have thought of a place that they knew about and that they had visited on the south side of Jerusalem. Gehenna, the valley of, the valley of fire. Okay? Um, in fact, you can go to hell today if you want. You can, go, you, can go, you can go see it. You can, you can book a ticket and go, see, and go see hell. And this valley has an ancient story. In the Old Testament, when Israel was at its worst, when it was at its worst, this was the valley that they sacrificed their own children to foreign deities in. And God cursed it forever. This is also the same valley that King Josiah um, when he was leading a reform to his country back to Yahweh, he took all the foreign or the uh, the foreign priests and the occultic uh, priests and uh, you know staff members or whatever. He took them down there to the to the to the this valley and he slaughtered them there to say, "Hey, we're only going to worship Yahweh. You're all out of this country." And it became known as the place, the Valley of Slaughter. Okay. In Jesus' day, the, what we can, from what we can tell, it was probably the garbage heap of the city. This is before you know, modern waste management and all of those types of things. When you would have um, garbage, you would just huck it over the wall into this valley and they burned it 24-7. So it was on fire all the time, smoldering with their garbage and their trash and their refuse. So this is the images that would have come to Jesus' his, uh, his, his, his audience's mind when he would have said this. Now, over time, this place began to become used as a metaphor to picture eternal judgment and, you know, the, the life after an eternal judgment. The point is, whatever you think about hell, chances are what the Bible has to actually say about it will probably surprise you, no matter where you're at on the theological spectrum. Let me just show you one thing in this passage alone. I, I don't want to go into it all, but this passage alone is pertinent. Notice that Jesus just says that if you feed anger and let it infect your heart, you are in danger of hellfire. In the Greek, it's in the present. 
Notice he says nothing about the future in this particular passage. Now, listen, please hear me. I am not saying there is no such thing as, as a place called hell. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the, the, the point, because I, I think there certainly is. Other places you see Jesus clearly referring to it that way. I'm simply saying that here in this passage, in this context, I think Jesus is warning, is warning about a hell in the here and now. And this really helps to understand how all the ancients understood heaven and hell. In the Old Testament, Jesus, and for the first 200, 300 years of church history, the life to come is a, was seen as a continuation of the trajectory that your life is on now. That you're setting a course and that you're, you're heading in a certain direction. So who you will become in the life after and what you will experience forever is a continuation for what your heart is set on now. No one says this better than C.S. Lewis. This is, I know my, my friend Victoria was thinking that in the back. Here's a Victoria quote. She loves C.S. Lewis. She's a C.S. Lewis you know, guru. He says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Think this through. To remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, we are helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, and all politics. In other words, we are being formed. This, is, this, is, uh, this goes along with the idea of Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven is the here and now, not just a place for later, but here and now that we're interacting with and that is interacting back with us and is actually shaping and forming us into something that we will be ushered into an afterlife in that same trajectory. Uh, That's why people who aren't following and loving Jesus now Heaven would be the last place on earth they'd want to be. Do you understand? That kind of changes things. Heaven, by definition, is the place where the rule and reign of God is in control of everything, is being done. If you hate the reign and rule of God now, then heaven is the last place you're going to want to end up. You're not going to like it. A great, great, I was just, a little homework assignment that you'll love. Read Lewis's Great Divorce. It gives this image across so, people go to heaven and they hate it. They can't wait to get on the bus to go back. Because that's where God rules and reigns. They don't like the reign and rule of God. See, the gates of hell, according to the Bible, are locked from the inside. Every time, every time we see a picture of someone in hell in the Bible, it is not, if I just would have known, I love you now. It is, I still hate you, and I want nothing to do with you. In, in that sense, God does not send people to hell. I don't like that. I don't, I don't find that phrase. I find it very misleading 
People choose. One step at a time. I want my will. And when God is seen to thwart their will, what do we get? Anger. Orgizomenos. I hate you, God. I want to be God. I'm angry at you because you want to be God and I want to be God. You're thwarting my will. Orgizomenos. I'm angry to my core. Jesus says, careful, careful. Be very careful. Even the slightest interruption of our will is a threat, is an opportunity for us to say, not my will, but yours be done. Every Every channel that won't work, every text that won't send, every traffic jam that we're in, every putting yourself above somebody else is an opportunity to say, okay, I am bending to the will of Yahweh. I'm interacting with the kingdom of heaven right now. And oh, it hurts, but it hurts so good. Let that anger go. Let it go. So there are implications here for sure when it comes to life after death. I'm not denying that. Please hear me. I'm not here to be controversial. But I do think the main point here is life before death. If you nurture anger, and this makes it a little bit more scary, if you nurture anger, you are inviting hell into your life, into your marriage, into your family, into your church, into your society. So what do we do? What do we do? That clock is misleading. Man, I'm doing good, you guys. I just want to say. Mm. So what do we do? Well, Jesus gives us two little practices that people in his kingdom will want to do, will naturally start to do as they interact with him. Okay? Again, remember our plumb line. He is both telling us what to do. He is. But more so, he's describing the kind of character and heart people in his kingdom will have. Let's pick it up in verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and he puts you in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid every last penny. So Jesus gives us two hypothetical situations here of his followers. The first one is about someone who's worshiping and, um, at the altar. There was only one altar in Jesus' day and it was at Jerusalem, okay, in the, t- in the temple campus. Now, to understand the impact of this, does anybody know where is Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount here? Anybody know? What? No, he's actually further than that. He's up north around the Sea of Galilee, 80 miles away. So here's what, I mean, think of this. Here's what he's saying. This is crazy. He's saying, if you make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you get your goat and your lamb and you go the 80 miles to Jerusalem, and you go before the altar and you're worshiping. And typically when you worship, this is where these things come up. You remember that you've got beef. Or someone's got beef. Actually, it's someone's got beef with you. And notice, Jesus doesn't say whether it's your fault or not. He, just, he makes it very vague on purpose. Anything. In other words, the heart of the disciple of Jesus is if someone has anything 
against me. He says, leave your gift, go 80 miles back to your village, find the person and say, hey man, can we work this out? I'm so sorry. Can we talk? Can we, can we get this through? And then go 80 miles back to Jerusalem and then finish your worship service to God. Do you, this, in other words, Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, the people that are interacting with me, this will be their priority. And whether you like it or not, your worship to God is completely and utterly linked to your relationship with other human beings. It is not love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then once you've got that down, work on others. No, it is saying, if you love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength, you will begin more and more to love others. And that will become a priority. You will, that line between others and God will get blurrier and blurrier and blurrier and blurrier to the point where you'll say, okay. And, and please understand, this is not Jesus saying, you're not allowed to come to church unless you get it all right first. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, stop coming. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this will be part of your worship. You will come and you will be worshiping me and you'll be interacting with me and it'll come to your heart. Oh, that person. Lord, I gotta go take care of that. It's part of your character. It's not, oh, I can't go worship God until, you know, you don't show up to your neighbor and say, look, I can't go to church until, you know, we work this out. So can we, you know, can you write me a little note so I can show the priest? You know, that's not what it is. He's saying, this is your soul, this is your heart, and you'll want to do this. Why? Why? Because this is what your Lord has done for you. This is the story of the Bible. He left heaven, made the infinite, timeless journey to earth to make it right with you and me. Paul says this is the gospel. It's reconciliation. God reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. He went all the way and tried to make it right. And then he became the lamb that died on the altar for your sin and my sin. And he's saying here, you cannot be in my kingdom and understand that. With how, how can you be in my kingdom and understand that and not have that play itself into your own life naturally? That's gonna change the way you see things. That's gonna change the way you look at people. That's gonna change the way you resolve conflict. That's gonna change those things to the degree that you understand who your Lord is and who you're interacting with. And because, like it or not, like I said, our worship with God is directly linked. It's a great tie. You know, I can say I love God all I want, but look, who I really am come, with God comes out with how I look at my wife, or how I treat my son. It shows that. I cannot get away from that. We have a lot of repenting to do. This is, I just have in my notes. <laughs> it's funny. I have a, one line in my notes. This is so convicting. <laughs> I think that was just for me. It was right when I get the, this is so hard. Yes, Mike, it is. Okay, scenario number two is similar. Two people have a legal dispute. They're on the road to court, and Jesus says to his followers to take care of, to, take care of it 
operative word, quickly. Deal with it quickly on the road or the person's going to take you to the judge. The judge is going to hand you over to the court. The court's going to hand you over to the prison. And this is something, we don't have this anymore, but maybe you're familiar with the idea of the incredibly weird idea of, of debtor's prison. Anyone read any Jane Austen or anything like that? You know, it's a prison where if you couldn't pay a debt, they'd throw you in jail until you could pay it back, which is completely weird and illogical because you can't go out and work to pay it back, so you're just going to be in there forever. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the thing. That's why we don't have those anymore, because no one's getting paid that way. But that was a thing in Jesus' day. The lesson here is to take care of things quickly because if you don't, they just, they, they tend to get worse. Isn't, isn't, our, isn't it our tendency, or am I just the only one, that tends to do the opposite of this? I'll take care of it, but I'll stew on it. Maybe I'll give some passive aggression first. Maybe I'll give silence and let you know, oh, you done messed up, right? And I let it, and what's, what's going on there? Instead of taking care of it quickly, what's going on there? The fire is glowing and beginning to, and I'm ruminating, and I'm even thinking more about what you did to make me mad, or what that person did, or how you, and it's just going on and on. Jesus says, nip it, take care of it. These are two little steps you can do. One, worship God this way. Two, do it quick. Do it quick. Our natural tendency is the opposite. This is countercultural. And this whole teaching, this is, and I just want to give you an, uh, and myself a nod today, because this is really hard, especially for us in our culture, because our culture is pretty much, uh, our culture disagrees with Jesus on this. Our culture says to use fury and anger to get things done and to stand up against what's wrong. We live in a culture that is angry. Especially right now, you guys, we're in the middle of an election cycle and it is brutal. It is heating up and it is brutal and it's angry and the name of the game is get angry, then go online and get all your friends to get angry and that's how we're gonna do this. We're gonna get angry. So everyone's just mad. Everyone's just angry. I was on YouTube the other day, which I hate, but I was there looking for something that would help me with this sermon and I'm scrolling through and I see, all, you know what I see? All these videos of, of watch so-and-so roast AOC or Jordan Peterson just destroys atheist. You know, here's the thing. What is that all based on? Contempt. No matter what side you're on, if you're, on, if you're a Jordan Peterson fan, you click on it because you're like, oh, yeah, I'd, I've always wanted to roast an atheist. I want to watch him do it. If you're on the atheist side, you, you watch it and you go, oh, they're misrepresenting him. They're not even saying it right. Both sides, anger, contempt, get mad. The sneaky thing is with this, you guys, is that we feel like it's okay to get mad if we agree with the person. Like it's justified to get good and angry. It resonates with us. And we think this is like when Jesus cleared the temple. No, no, nope, not the same. Not even close to the same. How can we, look, you guys, I'll even be, I'll be 
even more. Let's just, get, let's just do this. Western Christianity is an angry religion. No matter where you're at, no matter where you're at, it's angry. And there are certain people, and I'll say it right now, in the middle of an election cycle, there are certain people that are counting on you to get angry. They are fueling your anger. And it's not because they care about you. They know they want you to get good and angry, raging angry, and they're stoking those fires. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, everyone's mad. And whoever's the angriest, whoever's the loudest, we give in to that. That's what wins. And Christians are falling for it. We got to get mad. We, we rage against the culture. You want to be countercultural and be a light and salt of the world. Let your motivation be love. Love does not mean you agree. You can disagree and still have love and care and compassion. We can hold that tension. Dear friends, don't give in to the vitriol that's around us right now. Resist. Jesus is warning to us as his followers. Like he, they, remember what he said? He said, you are the light of the world. And this is, this is rule number one, how. Notice too, by the way, that this is Jesus' first, why is this the top of his list? I don't think this is a, a, a grab bag of things that Jesus was on about. I think anger was number one for him. Why do I think that? Because Paul, Paul and Peter picked it up in the Jesus tradition up when they give lists of sin. Anger and rage are typically at the top of that list. And I think they feed into things like next week is lust and not telling the truth. I think, I haven't thought it all the way through yet, but there's something in me that says, I think there's a link there that anger might lead to those types of things or fuel them or something. Let's be different. Let's organize and prioritize our lives differently. Let's not come here and just hear a fun sermon. This wasn't really fun, was it? But let's come here. Let's not just come here and, and hear a sermon. And go to hell part was pretty darn good. Yeah, let's not... Let's not come here and just hear that. What will we do differently leaving here today? Maybe we need to have conversations with, in our home groups or with our spouses or with our families and let's make it an honest one. Look, I need to confess, that's not the righteous anger I pretend it is. It's actually quite self-righteous. And it's because it hurts my ego, and I'm sorry. Will you help me be better? Yeah. I thought you were going to say this, and I was waiting, but when you said he was talking about your, he who says this will be in danger to the fire of hell, it's like he, what he's saying is he's going to turn your insides to yes. in garbage. Yes, very true. Because you, yeah, because, yeah, Paul and I, fellow eights on the Enneagram, and one way that that describes it is we experience fire in our gut. We do. And when I'm mad, it feels like fire in my belly. It really does. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought the same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. You're, it's miserable. It's miserable. 
How do we stop it? Right here. By realizing that someone, instead of hating us like he could, judging us, destroying us like he could, he actually came and became broken on our behalf to turn his enemies into friends, into sons, into daughters. You won't, we will not be able to turn, it's one thing to say, let's go out there and not be angry. Who's with me, right? <laughs> That's, again, we're, we're talking about behavior now. We're back on the surface. No, it's gotta be here, interacting with Jesus, and that can start here with the Eucharist this morning. Not just taking it, but realizing what it is. Someone who had every right to destroy me, has every right to throw me into the fires of hell, who has every right to judge me, he came and he was judged instead of me. He stood before a council, the Sanhedrin, who said, you're guilty and we're gonna crucify you. And he let God punish him for all of our sin. And God the Father didn't go to his son's aid. He let it happen so he could come to you and me and he could be loving to you and me. That's the only thing that's gonna turn turn the engine in our hearts, I think, is when we interact with his kingdom in that way. So let's do it.